This gun sure looks deadly, but it's not the least bit deadly unless I point it at someone and pull the trigger. Gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. Welcome back to Repeal the 20th Century. Today I am joined by uh, Christopher Hansen. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Oh, well, uh, thank you for having me. Um, you got the name right. Uh, <laughs> It's always a bit tricky how people try to pronounce it. Um, yeah, I'm a research assistant at the University of Leipzig in Germany. I completed my PhD in economics uh, last year from the University uh, of Angers in, uh, in France, where I worked with uh, Guido Hülsmann, or he was my supervisor, it's uh, a better way to put it. Um, I write pretty regularly and on Mises.org, or rather they, they publish my stuff pretty regularly. And, and yeah, that's about it. <laughs> yeah, I so I was put on, you were put onto my radar by your article about um, about fractional reserve banking and, and, and examining the critiques of fractional reserve banking, particularly the Rothbardian critique, and kind of going through the arguments and explaining them, showing the evidence behind them. Um, and I thought it was a really good summarization, especially for someone like me who isn't as in-depth into the banking. So monetary policy and banking is probably my weakest area when it comes to specifically economics, but just conversation of this type that gets discussed in these circles um that's where i'm weakest but yet you know as i've been in these circles that's where i've seen some of the hardest divides among econ people is is free banking or fractional reserve banking whatever it is yeah. um whatever their position is i've seen the most divide within these circles on that issue and i thought it was interesting and and very well put how you you examined the arguments against fractional reserve banking. Um, Thank you. But I, yeah, I, should, I should maybe say that it, um, as I explicitly write in the article, it is pretty one-sided mm -hmm. because I'm only going through the critiques and not first laying out a positive case for uh, free banking. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, I, I try to be thorough. <laughs> Yeah, and I th I think you were very thorough, um, and as you said, it, it didn't really go over the um, arguments for Frank, uh, for the other side and, and the critiques um, 
of of our side, though I think it, it did it did touch on it a little bit just in the explaining the arguments. But why yeah. I wanted to have you on is I think um, a lot of people would like that you know those kind of arguments presented in that way in a kind of like audio and video format. So I first wanted to ask you just what is the just to give the background around the issue and what yeah. the two sides are. And there are simple cases for each, uh, for each, why they yeah. posit each. Yeah, sure. So um, just to get, get the term straight, when we talk about free banking in this context, um, what we really mean is fractional reserve banking without a central bank. So, I mean, everyone, Rothbardians, what we call free bankers, everyone agree that we should have free banking in the sense that there should be no government involvement. The question is, the, uh, the debate is really over what kind of banking system uh, would that entail? What kind of banking system would naturally go with economic freedom or free society or however you want to put it? So the uh, orthodox position used to be um, that any kind of fractional reserve banking was really harmful and it was unstable and it led to inflation and business cycles and um, all these problems. That's, uh, that's basically the point of view of the mature Mises, so in the 1940s and 50s, and it's the point of view of Murray Rothbard. So when he wrote about uh, banking in the uh, in the 60s uh, in Manicomian State and later in the 80s in his um, uh, in his mystery of banking and also in his shorter works on what has government done to our money and so on he always assumed that uh, what we needed was 100 percent reserve banking um, so banks did not do not create money when they uh, make loans um, and this could be done simply by uh, by statute, by having some kind of legal enactment enforcing this. Or Rothbard admitted that the second best solution would be a free banking system where banks were still uh, permitted to engage in fractional reserve banking, but they had no kind of legal guarantees. They had no kind of uh, support from a central bank, no kind of FDIC insurance uh, as a backstop to help them. Because he thought that this uh, would um, it would not lead to 100% reserve, but it would severely curtail the use of uh, fractional reserve banking and the use of fiduciary media as money. I don't know how how uh, well read your audience is in all these terms, but just to get the again these terms straight. So when we talk about fiduciary media, well, one step back forever. When we talk about money, we can talk about money in the narrow sense and money in the broader sense. So money in the narrow sense is just whatever physical commodity, physical stuff you use as money. Um, so these days it would just be physical cash and uh, reserves with the central bank. In the broader sense, it's with all the claims to money that function just as well as money, uh, which again today would be basically um, money in your bank account. If this money in the broader sense 
uh, these claims to money are not fully backed by money in a narrow sense, we talk about fiduciary media. Uh, and if not, we just talk about money certificates. Um, and Rothbard thought that legally, uh, uh, that economically and legally, all money should have a form of money certificates, or uh, as you also like to uh, term it, as warehouse receipts. So when you put your money in the bank, you're really just putting them in a warehouse and you get a receipt in return. Um, okay, so that's the backstory. And then in the 80s, uh, a debate emerged on this issue because you have in uh, 1984, Lawrence White, uh, who's now a professor at uh, George Mason University, uh, published his, um, I think it was actually his doctoral dissertation uh, called Free Banking in Britain. Oh, what is it? Free Banking in Britain Policy and Debate, something like that. Um, where he argues that in uh, that you can have a, a stable free banking system in the sense of a stable free banking free uh, free banking fractional reserve system, and that this was historically the case in uh, Scotland from about 1700 to 1845. Um, and then uh, in, in 1988, uh, George Selgin published his doctoral dissertation uh, called, what is it? Uh, it's not called, it's free bank, it's something called, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I forget the title right now of his book, but he, it was also his, his main book on free banking, uh, where he went into much further depth uh, depth about how the system would function um, and also showing that this would be a fractional reserve uh, system and it would be stable and it would be uh, uh, economically beneficial um, and so on. And he also presented some other uh, historical cases and then in the uh, David Glassner also wrote a book on it in the 80s, 89 I think, and then you have sort of, sort of a, a, a flowering, a blossoming of all kinds of uh, studies and books in the early 90s, presenting historical cases, presenting yeah, other applications of free banking. Um, and how it was a good thing. And you also had some pushback uh, from Rothbard already in 1988. Rothbard said that uh, Rothbard had initially been very favorable uh, about uh, White's uh, thesis, but when in 1988 he changed his mind and, and said that, well, this is all wrong. I mean, we can't have fractional reserve free banking and this Scottish system is all, uh, all fake, basically. I'm sure we can get into this a little later if you want. Um, so he just went back and said, no, we need 100% reserves and we need uh, uh, to enforce this and these other arguments for free banking also don't work. This has been elaborated in the 90s. Uh, and basically ever since there's been a debate about this uh, between the free bankers on the one side, uh, so Larry White, George Selgin. Selgin is perhaps like the most vocal to this day of the free bankers. Uh, 
survey on the one side and then uh, what I call in the article the Rothbardians on the other side uh, who say that no it doesn't really work economically and uh, it's also not really uh, legally or ethically it's it's basically fraudulent um, and 100% reserves is uh, preferable and superior. Yeah, so I think that's a pretty good summation of, or a basic summation of the two sides um, on this debate. But uh, I would like to go and dive deeper into Rothbard's arguments, particularly, um, especially the fraudulent one, because I think that's the one I've seen posited the most in like an online debate kind of setting is is people say it's fraudulent so i'd kind of yeah. like uh, you to go in depth about why the rothbard particularly thought it was fraud and fraudulent yeah um okay so i'll just i'll first present rothbard's argument i've already touched upon it um so uh when Rothbard says that fractional reserve banking is fraudulent, um, it's partly based on uh, on his interpretation of a historical development of banking, and it's partly based on his understanding of what it is. So historically, the first uh, bankers, in this sense, the first fractional reserve bankers um, in the Anglo-American sphere, at least, were the London goldsmiths. In the 1640s uh, until the 1660s, I think. Um, these were goldsmiths, obviously, used to handle uh, uh, large amounts of gold, so used to securing large amounts of gold too. Um, so people uh, started to de depositing their gold with the goldsmiths. And in return, they get receipts for this, for this gold. Um, and since, um, since the receipt for gold was fully secure, you didn't really need to, when you wanted to spend your money, you didn't really need to go and redeem your receipts. You could just um, use, the, use them as a medium of exchange. Um, and the goldsmiths discovered this. Um, I mean, that it was only like a fraction of, of the gold they had in deposit that were ever needed. So they started thinking, well, we can just issue more receipts uh, and make money in this way. Now, um, historically, it, it's a good question whether this really was fraudulent because fraudulent because um, this part of the law was not fully developed at the time. Um, so of course, if, I mean, if you don't really know what kind of contract contract you're dealing with, what what the stipulations are, what the conditions are, and so on, then um, you need a judge to intervene uh, to make a decision. Um, and Rothbard, and this of course happened, and Rothbard thinks that um, what really happened in the case of the Goldsmith was that people did not 
lendevær money, lendevær gold to the goldsmiths. They just placed it uh, as a bailment. They just uh, wanted it kept safe. And then they would have the receipt to prove that they were the real owners. Uh, and obviously, if this is what happened, then they, it was obviously fraudulent for, by, for the goldsmiths to start issuing more receipts. Because, I mean, they, they are then issuing titles to property, in, in effect, uh, for property that doesn't exist, or they are uh, <clears throat> producing warehouse receipts for uh, property they, not, they don't have in their in storage. Um, now, Seljin has uh, argued he has an essay on the on the goldsmiths. I should say first of all that Rothbard is. I mean, Rothbard is not a cookie in any way in making this argument. This is the standard orthodox uh, explanation of how banking emerged. Rothbard is only. Uh, uh, Rothbard is only departing from the mainstream in saying that this is bad, that we shouldn't have had fractional reserve banking. Other mainstream economists will, oh, I mean, this is, uh, yeah, it was uh, just a fluke, and maybe it was like a little iffy the way we did it. But ultimately, it's good because now we have banking. And then Seljin has an, um, a nice paper showing that, well, um, it's not so simple. and we can't really say in this very um, uh, yeah in this very black and white way that the goldsmiths were frauds uh, Rothbard then also goes through some other uh, legal cases again in uh, in Britain so it's about in, in Rothbard is only dealing with the common law so it's all about the development of the common law and in all these cases uh, about the deposit of money and whether these were loans to the banker, so it became the banker's property or they were just uh, bailments, so it was just placed there for safekeeping. Uh, in all these cases, the judge found um, that this was really a loan to the bank, a loan to the banker. And the banker was therefore free to do whatever he wanted um, with the gold. With the gold, and Rothbard thinks this is wrong. Obviously, because he thinks that when you uh, when you engage in this kind of action, when you place your money uh, with a bank and receive a receipt, a banknote in return that you can then use uh, as money. Then obviously you have you have not surrendered control of the money. You still want access to it. You just want someone else to take care of all the details of safekeeping it. Um, so that's why he that's uh, obviously why he has this interpretation of uh, uh, of the evolution of of English law of of the common law, and uh, a free banker would then obviously have the the opposite interpretation, because if he thinks that there's no necessity for viewing um, uh, for viewing the the uh, what you call the, the claim on the bank, the note that you get from the banker as a receipt, if it can just be like uh, 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 if it, it can just really be a loan, well, 
then obviously it's fine and it's just as it should be when the when the judge finds um, but this is how it is. Yeah, I, I think you gave a good summation of why uh, it's fraud. I think, um, and you can correct me on this if you think otherwise, but I think like a good summation of it, of it if you had to put it, if you had to condense it to a sentence, it really doesn't condense to a sentence because it is a very complex topic, but if you had to, would be that uh, the reason is because it is, is offering up receipts and, and, and um, ownership to property that is not physically there at ever at all times so you're kind of offering up the a, a promise of something that may or may not be and that's why it's fraudulent um and i i yeah. think i think that is a, a compelling argument at the very least to why fractional reserve banking doesn't work but i think also there is the other side to this whole argument and that's the more technical side and I think that yeah. gets into, uh, you know, why do we see business cycles? Why do we see inflation? So I kind of want you to go into um, just what are the consequences of fractional reserve banking in, se in the sense of um, how does it create business cycles under the Rothbardian view or at least contribute to them as well as inflation? Yeah. Um Okay. So let's just um, let's just assume that we now have an economy with uh, banking, with free banking, fractional reserve banking, uh, and everything is just chugging along. And then, um, for some reason. Well, let me put it another way. Then, uh, so when we are in this kind of equilibrium position uh, of this plain state of rest, to use a Misesian term, there's no change in the supply of money. So uh, uh, part of the money supply is just uh, money in the narrow sense, either one deposit uh, as reserves uh, with the banks are used by people uh, in, their, in their own deposits, in their own personal pockets and so on. But from this position, um, what we need to uh, consider is what happens if there is a change in the money supply. And this change can come about um, in different ways. So we can imagine that um, people deposit some of the money they are keeping in their own personal holding, in their own uh, checkbooks, in their own under the mattress, so to speak, in the banks, which would allow the banks to uh, expand credit. Or we can imagine that there are small, if it is a commodity standard, it's like a gold standard, that there's more money coming in from uh, abroad, which, which in this case just means from somewhere not connected to this banking system. Uh, and this extra gold is then deposited, which would again allow the banks to expand uh, credit. Or we can finally uh, imagine that the banks, um, 
decide to lower to expand credit because they think they can uh, that economic conditions have changed so they no longer to need to keep as high a level of reserves as before so they think that people will not come and uh, ask for their money back uh, to the same degree uh, or to put it differently they think there's a larger demand for their for their notes uh, or for deposits with them so um, the way this happens in a banking system in a free banking system is that banks uh, lend more money uh, they lend money to a person and by this act of lending at the same time it's the same operation they create a checking account for this person at the bank or they raise the limit on his checking account or whatever or if it's a case of issuing banknotes they uh, just lend him newly created banknotes uh, which will then be claims on the bank and the same with his checking account would be extra claims on the bank And this person would then uh, obviously go on, to, go on to spend this new money uh, on whatever he wants to uh, spend it on. This could just result in, uh, since the supply of money in this way increases, this would obviously raise prices. This could just be normal consumer prices. If it's just a man who, who borrows money to consume, then whatever consumer goods he spends it on, their prices will raise. Or, and this is where we get to business cycle, it could be an entrepreneur who wants to establish a new business uh, or whatever. So he uh, takes out new loans and um, spends it on, on his enterprise, on his new business, or his expanding his old business or whatever it is. Of course, it's just a case of one per, of one bank issuing one extra loan. If, if that was all that happened, then we would just have like a minuscule uh, fluctuation. But if it is like a systematic credit expansion, um, because the banks as a whole realize or think that they can uh, profit by lowering their reserves and uh, issuing more money, then you have uh, a lot of entrepreneurs suddenly seeing that there's now very cheap credit because obviously one thing that will happen is that the interest rate will fall. The banks will have a lot of, uh, of money they want to lend out and to interest the entrepreneurs they need to either lower the rate of interest on the loans or somehow make the terms easier in some other way, or maybe they just need to find lower quality entrepreneurs who they would never consider otherwise to lend, to lend money to. Um, now, what happens here is that the entrepreneurs think that they have, have this extra supply of capital that they can just uh, spend on uh, new production or expanding the production structure um, and obviously they plan according to this and they open a lot of uh, new business lines, new uh, factories, whatever. I mean, it's obviously always different from case to case exactly what the data are. Um, but we would say that the uh, activity in the higher stages of production of what's furthest from uh, the consumer 
increases uh, due to this inflow of extra money. Uh, and this is the boom. Now, the reason it's a boom and not just uh, economic growth or economic development is that it's only money. I mean, there has been no real savings uh, to supply the entrepreneurs uh, with the funds needed. So um, it's really a, a, what we call a cluster of errors. Uh, that is to say, every everyone, virtually everyone, all the businessmen think that there's uh, more plentiful supply. They can see the interest rate is falling. Uh, there's more plentiful supply of capital that is. Um, so they just uh, act as if there really was a more plentiful supply. But there's only a more plentiful supply of money. Um, that is to say, the basic savings consumption proportion of the people uh, have not changed. People have not saved more, put it in the bank, said to them, give it to someone who can give me 5% per annum. Um, so that's the boom. And since this is so, that it's a boom uh, like this, we will see it uh, turn to crisis very soon. Because one thing um, that businessmen spend money on is obviously labor and other uh, and landowners, landowners and the factors of production in general. But they spend it ultimately on paying people. And the people they pay, as I just said, they have not changed their uh, consumption investment pro uh, proportion. So when they see uh, that they now get uh, uh, higher wages necessarily because it's new money, uh, they are not going to spend it in a proportion that's compatible with the new uh, structure of production that entrepreneurs are in the course of building. They'll just go back to, I mean, they might even spend more of it on consumption because we have higher wages and the interest rate is lower. So why should they save more? I mean, that doesn't make sense. But just at a minimum, they might just spend it at the old um, proportion. So they, they will consume more than is really compatible uh, with the new structure of production. So that's why we see at the same time malinvestment or overinvestment, we can also say. But it is really malinvestment because it's in the wrong kinds of things. And overconsumption because people um, have all this extra cash and we just uh, uh, increase their consumption or keep it steady uh, or increase it. So, if, uh, and this of course means that uh, consumer prices rise and that factors of production then beat back to consumer goods industries and the entrepreneurs then see that prices for them obviously also rise. And this will very quickly bring about a, a crisis, unless the banks say, well, you can just have some more money, or we'll lend you some more money, uh, and we'll keep the uh, boom going in this way. But obviously, this is not, I mean, this, it, the fact that you can get more loans doesn't make the boom sustainable. It just means that you can postpone the crash. Whereas the crash will be that much uh, harder, because you'll, you'll have invested that much more in, in the wrong kinds of stuff. Uh, so that's, just, that's in very briefly the, the business cycle and the role of banks 
in it. So I want to touch specifically on investment, um, particularly without how it would work without fractional reserve banking, because um, at least in America, economic education is very bare bones. But one thing they do talk about is fractional reserve banking and the way that they kind of characterize it and present it, they make it seem like without fractional reserve banking there basically is no investment they the 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 argument i've seen both people who are on the side of fractional reserve banking and then also just lay people who just don't know very much about it but do know this very basic about how banking works they say you know without fractional reserve banking it, you may see over investment and investment in the wrong things, but without it, you would basically see no investment is the argument. Um, mm -hmm. And I kind of want to get your response to that, how you would respond to that argument, um, particularly, you know, how, how would banks be able to make loans and investments um, if they had to keep full reserves? Yeah. Um yeah, I think this goes to a very uh, fundamental difference um, between not only free bankers and Rothbardians, but also between Rothbardians and Lissetians generally, and most of our economists. What I mean, our fundamental position is that there, there's two distinct things. On the one hand, we have demand for money and money holding. And on the other hand, we have um, savings and investment. These have uh, nothing to do with each, with each other, whatever. Um, it's more, um, so already Adam Smith and classical economists will say that, well, just having all this gold stuff piled up in your cellar or in the bank, that doesn't make any sense. Um, we can invest it and you can just get paper instead and use it just as well. And, uh, and we'll have a much more uh, capitalistic, much more uh, developed economy as a result, because instead of just, uh, yeah, instead of just keeping all your money in, in your cellar, it's actually out, out working to like to use a, a, a usual idiom. Um, so that's just to say that, as I, I mean, the the mainstream and the position is is the one with perhaps the it has a good pedigree. Um, although I would say the Austrian also has. Now we the free bankers say the same. Um, obviously, in, in, in not in exactly the same language as Smith and as a classical economist, but they also say that. Well, uh, if you put money in the bank, I have a very clear, uh, I mean, it's very clear that they think that if you put money in the bank, this money is made available for investment. So with bank money, as opposed to just physical cash or uh, a gold standard or whatever, you get a much more developed, a much more capitalistic economy and a much more wealthy society if you use fractional reserve banking. Um, now, the reason that this is wrong, 
but I think it is wrong. And I mean, I, and Mises would say this is wrong, and Rothbard would say this is wrong, and so on. Um, is as I said at the beginning, the demand for money, holding money, and investing are two very different activities. Fundamentally, when you uh, when you want to have money, when you want to uh, keep a certain amount of money in your in your cash balance, whether it's in your pocket or in your bank account, uh, what you want is uh, immediate access to purchasing power. You want to be able to spend it uh, when you want it on whatever you want to spend it on. Um, and this obviously means that it must be there. If it's not there, then you can't spend it and it's not available to you and it cannot be available to someone else and to you at the same time. Um, savings and investment um, is different. When you save something, well, again, maybe we should again distinguish between plain saving, which means just piling up stuff. I mean, uh, buying a house, if you just want to live in it, if it's not an investment object, it's just plain saving. Um, piling up uh, whatever, if, if you are a prepper of some kind, so you pile up huge quantities of ammunition and canned food and so on, that's plain saving. You're not investing in it, you just want it available to consume. Uh, so that's plain saving. And then capitalistic saving, which is the interesting, the economically interesting part, I guess, is where you, uh, you consume less when you uh, when you earn or when you produce, and then the surplus is invested uh, in a longer uh, production structure. Um, I mean, we can imagine this in a, in in just a primitive Robinson Crusoe setting, where um, let's say. Uh, Robinson Crusoe works all day catching fish, but he only he catches three a day, but he only eats two of them. Uh, and he does this for uh, uh, for four days, and then for the next day, so he piles up fish, and then for the next couple of days, instead of fishing, he uh, consumes his fish while working on a, some kind of net. So we can catch more fish in the future. Um, so in this instance, uh, Crusoe would have transformed his uh, his fish, his consumer goods, um, into capital that he can then use, or capital good that he can then use to increase production in the future. So he's investing in the future. He's not. Uh, he just. He's not just piling up stuff to have available now or available whenever he wants. In a modern capitalistic economy, it's obviously different. We don't just pile up uh, different commodities of our own and then start building something. Uh, what we do is that we earn some money and then we only consume some of it, spend some of it on consumer goods and the rest of it um, we then invest in some way. 
we can obviously take different forms. Uh, you can buy stock shares, you can uh, buy a bond, you can uh, put it in a savings account where you don't have up, uh, access to it. Um, so a savings account that's actually a real uh, a real savings account and not just another kind of uh, uh, normal bank account. Of course, it's true, uh, as you said, that as the system is today, uh, the money in your bank account is also treated as if it's available for investment. But I hope it should be clear that, I mean, uh, while this is maybe true from a bank's point of view, it's not true from your, it's not the intention of the individual, and it's also not true from the overall point of view. Putting money in the bank account, in in the bank account, uh, just because this is the most, uh, the most, uh, the least expensive, the least costly way for you to hold your money doesn't mean that there's now extra money available to spend on uh, future production, on the production of future consumer goods, rather. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, uh, so I think you also said, so how would how would we have investment in the absence of, of fractional reserve banking? Um, that's, of course, um, spe speculation on my part, except we see it all the time as it is right now. People would buy stock shares, they would buy uh, bonds, they would uh, put money in uh, money market mutual funds. Um, I mean, they might lend money to their uh, to family members. Uh, they think have a good business idea and so on and so forth. It's not necessary to go through the bank system. All right. Yeah, I think I think you summed that out well and, and answered a lot of concerns that people have, um, both from the lay person's uh, view of it and then also those who are in favor of fractional reserve banking. And I think you summarize the arguments really well uh, and make a good case for it. So, but. I didn't have anything else that I particularly wanted to jump on. Um, and if there's anything you want to add, I want to give you that time to add that. Uh, otherwise, if you have something you want to promote, we can promote that too. Um, well, I guess something I could add, um, that I touched on in the article that I then had an exchange with uh, George Sullivan on Twitter about it is this question of is um, is a free banking system inflationary in itself and will it ensure what we what we call or rather what free bankers call monetary equilibrium now um, So it's obviously clear, and, and nobody disputes this, that when you introduce a free banking system, you put your money, your your gold, if it's on a gold standard, in the bank banking system, and since it's a fractional reserve system, the money supply will expand. 
and everyone agrees that yes, there will be this one-off uh, expansion of the money supply, so there will be this one-off inflation. Um, but then the free bankers say, after that, um, the free banking system will perform uh, the price level and the money supply under a free banking system will perform in just the same way as it would under a, a pure 100% reserve system under a pure commodity standard. Um, now, as I said, I mean, I've had some um, exchanges with Seljin about this, and I don't think I, uh, I'm misrepresenting him, but I invite your listeners or viewers to go and read his own stuff and the free bankers on it so you they can make their own judgment. Um, there are some ways in, in which I think it's, uh, yeah, I agree with him. So for example, if under a pure gold standard system, the gold supply increases by 1%, the money supply increases by 1%. If in a free banking system where gold is the reserve asset, uh, the gold supply increases by 1%, all the extra gold is deposited in the banks. Since they keep the same reserve ratios, then the money supply increases by 1%. Now, this is true, but I think it's uh, presenting it like this um fundamentally i mean yeah it, it it doesn't address the issue uh that misesians see in this because yeah i mean it's true that if all you look at is the aggregate the money supply it increases by one percent or you look at the price level it increases by one percent then it's the same but the process by which the money supply has increased is very different. In the first case, under the gold standard, you just have an increase um, in the gold supply. So a new invention in gold mining perhaps has made it more profitable. So more gold comes on the market. Um, prices change since the first, uh, the first owners of the new gold can spend it first. They'll, bid up prices on whatever way you want to buy, then the uh, people they buy from, their money, uh, yeah, their cash balance then obviously is, is higher than it used to be. So they can bid up prices and so on and so forth until uh, the new money has fully diluted into the system. The same thing happens under the free banking system, you might say, except that obviously the direction of the price changes um, is very different. Here, the uh, let's say again, it's just the gold miners have a new invention, so they increase production, so 1% more gold enters the country. All this new gold is then deposited in the banking system. Um, and then the banks can uh, make new loans uh, to entrepreneurs and so on, since we now have all these extra reserves. I mean, they have, they always keep only 
uh, as much uh, gold on reserve as we think is absolutely necessary to meet any demands that might come uh, that might uh, that might come to them. So what happens now under the second setup under the free banking system is that yes, the end result is the same that the price level increases one percent, the money supply increases one percent. But the people who get the new money first, uh, are, that is to say, right after the uh, gold miners, uh, is the banks who expand credit and the entrepreneurs who get all this new money. So obviously, now it's a different set of people who get a lot of new money. And this in itself can set, up, uh, can set off a business cycle. I mean, if it is primarily loans to business, as I just went through, then it will be a business cycle, or it will just, at the very least, uh, be an increase in the money supply that favors uh, the banking sector and the financial sector more than the rest of the economy. Um, Singly, I mean, I don't know if you want me to, to go into monetary equilibrium. Um, it's a bit more technical, I guess, but it's also a key difference between the Rothbardians or the Misesians, as I would claim, and the free bankers. Um, is that something, should I expand on that? Or? Um, yeah, I think, I think getting into the, those technical um, aspects, if you wanted to go into those for a little bit, uh, just to clarify them, yeah. I think that would be helpful and a, and a good way to, to end on. Good yeah. point to end on. Okay. okay. I'll try to keep it brief. <laughs> um, so, uh, fundamentally, to set out from, I mean, we have a common starting point here. Uh, all participants to the debate. Everyone agrees that when we talk about demand for money, we are really talking about demand to hold. You don't consume money, you just hold it. When you spend it, you no longer demand it. That's, I mean, that's, uh, in one sense, I think it's pretty obvious, but in another sense, uh, a lot of people have gotten this wrong. They think that spending money is consuming money. No, the demand for money, the way that you consume money is to hold it. Uh, just like your demand for housing is the house that you actually own or possess if you're just a renter. Uh, your demand for cars is the car that you actually own and so on and so forth. Uh, now, this obviously means this was something uh, that was elaborated already back in the 19. 20s by British economist Edwin Cannon, uh, and something that Mises really emphasized, and Rothbard, and so on. Now, um, the point where the debate emerges, where, where the disagreement emerges, is when we um, try to disaggregate this total demand. Uh, to learn a bit more about what's going on. When it comes to um, 
any good really we can talk about both exchange demand which is what most people think about when you talk about supply and demand it's just whatever is offered on the market is the exchange demand and then the reservation demand which is what is not offered on the market what you keep in reserve what you don't want to uh, uh, what you don't want to sell at these current prices so again housing is a very good example that we have uh, some exchange demand for housing all the time but the largest part of course is the reservation demand because most people rarely sell their house uh, with money it's the same because because of course i mean people spend money all the time but if you compare what what is spent at an, in any given market day to uh, the total money supply then the exchange uh, when what is spent is uh, it's just a fraction um, i mean it, it's a it's a large fraction but it's still not just a fraction mm -hmm. so uh, the free bankers think that we can just ignore the exchange demand for money so the exchange demand for money is of course uh, is constituted by all the goods and services that people sell in order to get more money um, it's really just the inverse in the inverse of any uh, uh, sorry the supply of any good in the market is simply a partial exchange demand for money and when we want to talk about purely monetary things free bankers say we can ignore this because just by the nature of the thing of course any exchange demand for money is met by an equal exchange supply for money the market's clear and therefore it sums to zero so we just need to uh, look at reservation demand the uh, people's uh, desire the cash holding people desire to keep uh, after their expenditures and they think that if um, And this is when ultimately this is when when we talk about demand for money this is what they mean they only mean reservation demand and then they think that if there is a um, change in reservation demand for money this can cause disturbances uh, in the real economy so let's say all of a sudden people desire to hold more money for whatever reason um, if nothing happens, if the money supply doesn't adjust to this, then um, the only way this extra demand for money can be accommodated is if prices fall or if the value of money rises. So that even uh, so that the value of each monetary unit increases, and thereby people's um, the real value of people's cash balances increases to satisfy that demand for money. In itself, there might be nothing wrong with this, except that if you have like uh, rigidities of some kind, if you have sticky prices or menu costs, that uh, such that prices cannot adjust to the sudden the sudden shock. 
uh, then you can uh, get a real economic crisis crisis simply from a change in the demand for money. Um, so you get an uh, yeah I mean what you I mean you will see a fall up in aggregate demand and therefore a fall off in production and people will get unemployed and so forth and you'll have a real economic crisis. <clears throat> in order to avoid this, uh, which everyone would agree is obviously a bad outcome. So in order to avoid this, free bankers say that in free banking, the system automatically accommodates the demand for money. Since uh, if there is an increase in the demand for money, the banks will notice this and will just increase the supply. Because I mean, it's costless to a bank to make a new loan, obviously. Um, so we'll just accommodate this. Uh, and whatever the extra demand for money is, will be met by an equal extra supply of money. And there will be no disturbances to the real economy, to, to prices and deployment and so on. So that's the free banking position. Now, the critique here is that, um, well, I mean, there are several critiques. One is that, that I will not, unless you want me to, I will not really go into this, this question of sticky prices and menu costs, which I think is very much overdone, um, at least if we're talking about a, a free economy. Um, But there is this idea of money, monetary equilibrium when the supply of money accommodates the demand for money in this way. The problem is that, it's, as I uh, laid out just before, that they really only consider the reservation demand for money. Um, and it doesn't make sense to uh, only consider this partial demand for money, you need to consider the total demand for money. And if this happens, I mean, if you do this, then you will obviously see that, well, when the demand for money increases, what really happens is that on some people's value scale, the position of uh, the marginal monetary unit and whatever other consumption and investment goods they might purchase changes. Uh, and this would be different for different people, so it will have uh, different effects in various markets for consumer goods and investment goods and so on. But immediately when you see this, well, then you see that, well, obviously, I mean, this is just a change in the data of the market of each individual market for whatever gadgets, uh, consumption goods and whatever. So it's not really true to think of this as um, separate from the real economy. It's all integrated uh, in one whole. Um, Joseph Salerno has a great paper on this uh, called A Simple Model of Money Prices. I think I linked to it in the article. 
um, where he shows this and how, how closely uh, the two go together. So yeah, it's true we can talk about reservation demand for money, but we can never really understand it without also always looking at the exchange demand for money. And the exchange demand for money is, as I said, really spread out over the whole monetary economy. Every market where you exchange money, where you exchange something against money is part of the exchange demand for money. Um, and secondly, it's um, I don't see how in this in this free banking scenario where the banks just create more money to accommodate extra demand for money. I don't see how um, how you can claim. That this is not this will not cause a distortion in the system. First of all, because the real counterfactual you need to keep in mind is what I just said. That to uh, to reflect people's preferences, prices in various markets would have to change, would have to fall. And if you keep that from happening, I mean you are de facto intervening to prop up some prices uh, and other prices and so on. And secondly, um, I mean, eventually, if this is just like a spike in demand for money, if people just become um, very uncertain about future conditions, so they want to add to their cash balance, for instance, uh, then eventually people will produce that demand for money again. And now we have all this cash in their bank account. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, they might repay the loans, um, but they might also just spend it, which would again lead to inflation. Um, and, and finally, and maybe I should just end on this, there's this um, blind spot, I think, it's fair to say. Or I mean, rather, I should say, I mean, this is also a point of contention, a point of debate that free bankers say that you can have a supply of money or rather this demand for money uh, and it varies independently um, of banking policy. But I would argue that this is not true, that if you, when you demand uh, money, specifically when you demand bank deposits, it matters very much what kind of interest rate you have to pay or you can get according to the circumstances and what other kinds of um, terms might apply. So you cannot treat the demand for money as if it's somehow an exogenous factor unrelated to the banking system. It's very much connected to it. Um, and it's, for, this, for this reason, it, doesn't really make sense to talk about these two independent variables or this independent variable demand for money that has been accommodated by this other variable because it is dependent on the supply of money or on, on the conditions on which you can get money. That was a bit long, but I hope it was understandable. No, yeah, I think I think it's very understandable and 
it is a complex topic. It's not one I expected to to go for not very long. But yeah, I think you covered a lot of bases and a lot of questions people would have about it. So now I'm going to give you the time. The floor is yours to promote anything of yours that you have going on. Uh, any projects, okay. any books, any writings, anything. Oh, well, um, well, I mean, I write various things from time to time. Um, most of it, virtually all of it, that is in English, can be found at Mises.org. Um, I don't have anything else to promote, at least nothing that I can think of right now. Um, but people can look there, or they can... Yeah, I guess that's all I have. I mean, I do have some German language things too in the works, um, but I don't know if that's relevant for, for your audience. Yeah, no, uh, and I'll make sure to put down your Mises profile, that way people can see your English works. And then if you are, uh, by chance, a, a listener who also speaks German, um, I'll make sure to add something about that to try to that way they can uh, get to your works as well. Um, but yeah, I appreciate you so much for coming on. Um, I really did enjoy your article and, and, it, and I am going to link that as well because I think having both a, a audio version of kind of the things you go over and then also a, a written version is very helpful for people, I, you know, especially with people who are not as good as reading um, or have great reading comprehension, so they'd rather <laughs> an yeah. audio format. But yeah, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, I hope you have a wonderful day. Yeah, thank you. Had a great time.